we're going to have the second half of our main Bible reading now. So picking up Isaiah 58, which is on page 617 of the Church Bibles. So Isaiah 58 and 59. says this. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. <coughs> Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you seen it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down? his head like a reed, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? <coughs> Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rearguard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, and speaking wickedness, if you, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honourable, if you honour it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. For your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. 
he who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in the highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigour, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, <coughs> and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, with the wind of the Lord, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Well, do keep that um, passage open. We're going to be looking uh, at that together over the next few minutes. Just to say, there is an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so do make use of that as you see fit. And there will be an opportunity at the end to ask any questions or make any comments. So I mention it now so you can um, bear that in mind as we go through. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who does not change, that you are the God who is sovereign, truthful and good. And therefore we pray as your people that we would demonstrate uh, that uh, you are our God in our response to your word, that we would listen 
attentively to it, that we would trust it and that we would be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Is purity off-putting? Does distinctive Christian living put people off Christianity? The church has always been under pressure to conform to the world in one way or another. And part of the lure for the church to conform is that we wouldn't be so off-putting to the world. It's the way to stay relevant rather than appearing out of touch. In a bid to be relevant, the church can conform to the world and in so doing, compromise its purity. Now, one might think that if you relax the rules, well, then more people can come in. Under pressure from dwindling numbers, this becomes an attractive route to boost numbers. Christian distinctiveness is then seen as an obstacle that needs to be overcome. And we're going to see this morning why this train of thinking is so disastrous and how instead we are to be emboldened to be pure and therefore share in the salvation of God. Chapter 56 begins with a call for the people to be pure. Have a look, 56 verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. In view of the coming salvation that God will bring, they need to be righteous. Now, if you've been following our series in Isaiah, we've been provided with a portrait of the salvation of God that he will bring. And in previous weeks, we've already met several aspects of it. It involves the destruction of God's enemies. It will involve the forgiveness of sins. And the theme of these chapters is God's provision of the purity of his people. And if we step back for a moment, it's part of the comprehensiveness of God's salvation. The problem of sin is multifactored. There's the problem of sin with respect to God. Sin is an offence against God, and the penalty for sin is death. There's a problem of sin with respect to Satan. We are vulnerable to his malice. And there's a problem of sin with respect to us as individuals. We are enslaved to sin. And these all need to be addressed. Not only do God's enemies need to be dealt with, not only does God's anger need to be appeased and forgiveness provided, but also God's people need to be transformed 
and purified. And this is the theme of these chapters, the need for the purity of God's people as part of that comprehensive package. In other words, even if their enemies are destroyed and their sins are forgiven, the people cannot return successfully to the land unless they are pure. Now, for our purposes, what is interesting is that straight after this call for purity, there is mention both of the eunuch and the foreigner. People who were excluded in one way or another from the people of God are anticipated as being included and sharing in the salvation of God. But notice the connection between the righteousness of the people and their inclusion. So if you look at verse 3, the people are to be righteous so that the foreigner doesn't say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The implication being that if the people are unrighteous, that that will obstruct the inclusion of the eunuch and the foreigners. So however we're going to think about the purity of the people of God and their relationship with the world, well here there's a very positive connection. The righteousness of the people is integral to the inclusion of others. And their lack of righteousness will obstruct it. And this is his point when Jesus quotes from this text when he himself visited the temple in his day. The activity of the Jewish leaders in the temple were obstructing the coming of the Gentiles to pray by turning the outer courts into a market. It was obstructing God's purpose was, was what infuriated Jesus so. The temple as he found it was a far cry from the function that God intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, in chapters 57 and 58, it's very clear that the people are unrighteous. And actually, they have an inability to be righteous. But it's interesting in the way that it's framed. For if you look at 57 verse 12, the Lord says in 57 verse 12 to the people, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. The Lord says he will show them his, their righteousness, which turns out to be no righteousness at all. The idea being that the people are deceived, that they claim to have a righteousness, but that it's false. Now this ought not to be a surprise to us, because what sin does is corrupt that which is good. So you end up with that which is true 
and that which is corrupt. So a classic example is faith. You can have a true faith and you can have a false faith. Okay, so go back to Genesis 3. A true faith would be trust in God's word. A false faith would be trust in the serpent's word. Now this is helpful for if we thought differently and the options were faith or no faith, then what we would need is faith as opposed to no faith. But if the options are true faith and false faith, then what we need is not faith, but the right kind of faith. And so with righteousness, there is true righteousness and there's false or phony righteousness. This means that the question invariably isn't that the people need more righteousness, but that they need the right kind of righteousness. Okay, do you see the difference? If there's a true righteousness and a false righteousness, then what the people need is not more righteousness, as they may end up with more false righteousness. What they need is the right kind of righteousness. And what we see in chapter 57 is that the people's false righteousness is largely conformity to the world. The people share in the idolatry of the nations. And in conforming to the world, a world that's in rebellion to God, their ways are not God's ways. It's a bleak picture, an inability of the people to have the righteousness God requires. It's in chapter 59, from verse 16, that we have this wonderful picture of the mighty warrior. <clears throat> that God himself comes and brings his righteousness to his people. The chapter ends with sin having been taken away, banished, as it were, from their presence. It's as if God himself provides the righteousness that his people need. Now let me make a couple of observations. The first is how this warrior is dressed. He wears a number of pieces of armour. In particular, verse 17, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate. And this is indicative of the fact that the righteousness that he brings is his. That is, righteousness is not something that's external to God and the world. There is no third thing. You've either got conformity to the world or conformity to God. False righteousness is conformity to the world which is godless. True righteousness is conformity to God. It's about bearing his image. A further observation, 
Did you notice that whilst it is the Lord who comes to bring this salvation, it is the arm of the Lord that is the focus? Have a look at 59 verse 16. Chapter 59 verse 16 says this. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. It is the arm of the Lord that is tied up with the salvation that God will bring. Now we've met the arm of the Lord before. Back in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 1. There the arm of the Lord was also tied up with the salvation that he will bring. There he was identified as the servant of the Lord who is punished for his people's sins. Not his sins, because he was pierced for our transgressions. And if we put this together with what we see in Isaiah 59, we get this picture of one who will not only provide the forgiveness of sins, but who will also purify his people. There is this twin work of not only forgiveness, but purification by this one. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, according to John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we might be more familiar with the idea that John was referring to Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. Although, as far as we know, John never put that together. Of course, he could be speaking more than he knew. Or he could be getting at the idea that Jesus is also the mighty warrior who will remove the sin of the world. And if that is God's purpose for his people, then we are to share in that purpose, that we would be pure, that we would fully participate in the salvation that he has provided, not only rely on Jesus, who is punished for our sins, but that we would also be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. We began by considering the pressure on the church to conform to the world. Part of the lure is that we wouldn't be so off-putting to the world. It's the way to stay relevant, we're told, rather than appearing out of touch. But the argument is topsy-turvy. If we conform to the world, then we've nothing to say to the world. We become irrelevant. God's purpose is that his people bear witness to the world by displaying his righteousness. I mean, there is no point hanging out with non-Christian friends and behaving just like them. If I act like them, if I speak like them, if I think just like them, then I have nothing to say to them. 
I become irrelevant to them because I'm just like them. It's precisely that, in our distinctiveness, that we have something to say, that we're able to bear witness to God and his salvation. If the church is absorbed into the world, then she loses the ability to call the world out of itself into the salvation of God. Let me pray and then uh, give you a moment and then you can ask any questions or make any comments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the comprehensiveness of your salvation, that you don't simply forgive our sins um, and uh, make us safe uh, from our enemies, but that you also transform us uh, to be pure. And we pray, therefore, that we would share fully in this salvation that you have provided uh, for us. And please would we not be deceived by the lure that in order to be relevant, we need to conform to the world. Rather, please would you strengthen us, embolden us to be pure, precisely because your purpose is that we would um, be visible in the world as your people. And that would be part of your means to advance your gospel and bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Okay, now is your moment to ask any questions or comments. Katie. You know, very much so, yeah. Yeah, so just for the recording, a question about um, although Jesus is perfect, we're not perfect. And although we're called to be perfect, we're not. So kind of how do we think about the fact that we're not 
even though we're supposed to be, you know, is there kind of a, that kind of thing. Yes. So, uh, so I don't know about you. Um, okay, it's kind of a little bit of a preamble. Um, I was, I grew up with um, one of the family mottos was, as long as you do your best, nobody can ask for any more. Do you probably like familiar with that? So basically, the idea is, as long as you do your best, that is, what can anyone else ask for? And I guess that can um, um, permeate into Christian life. And we kind of think, well, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I, I give it a good shot. I try my best. You know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, there's that kind of, kind of middle way where you just think, I'm trying to be, but, you know, I am who I am sort of thing. Now, I think that thinking is foreign to the Bible. I don't think the Bible ever encourages us just to simply do our best. And actually, we're going to we'll come across this in the, um, say, on reflection in the Lord's Supper. But I think the Bible has two things that it, it says to navigate this kind of tension. So on the one hand, now that we are God's people, we are to be perfect as a Heavenly Father is perfect. And so therefore, if you can put it this way, every time we sin, we sin without excuse. Okay, so we're, we are now to be righteous. That's the, that's the call of the people of God, but to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. Okay, but then on the same side, every, when we don't, when we do sin, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died um, so that um, we could be forgiven. And therefore, when we sin, we confess our sins, and he is faithful to forgive us. So I think they're the two things to hold in mind, that on the one hand, now that we're Christian, if we're a Christian, the bar is, be holy as God is holy. It's not like, you know, just do your best. It's, we are to be holy. And then when we fall short of that, fall short of that, we do it without excuse. Because the danger is, if you try your best, you just think, well, I couldn't help it. You know, basically, you, you excuse yourself from that which we're called to. So there's, the bar is the holiness of God. But that's at the same time, it's recognised that in this, the now and not yet, we're not yet glorified. The sanctification is a process. And when we, which we do, and actually John will say we deceive ourselves if we, we think we're already there, when we fall short, we, we confess and ask for forgiveness. So that's why the cross continues to be so central to our lives, because we are, we're not yet what we'll one day be. So I think, I think, but I think they're really important to put together, because the other way is just basically to, if we can't be righteous, then basically we, well, either we decide that God doesn't require it, or we just lower the bar, and none of those we're permitted to do. Does that help? Yeah, cool. Anybody else? Susie.
You know, I thought exactly the same thing. So just for the recording, in 57 verse 17, it talks about he um, and the uh, sinfulness of whoever this he is. And you kind of think, is this Israel in view? But if it's if it is, why is it he? Shouldn't we expect a sort of a she? Because um, I think sometimes Israel is referred to that. Yeah, I looked it up on a commentary, and yeah, he said it, it was just referring to Israel. Um, I haven't chased it up any further, but in many ways the context makes sense because it's describing the um, the unrighteousness of Israel and their inability to be righteous. And actually the fact that God has seen this and that in this state they're unable to return to the land uh, without a corresponding return to God. So yeah, I think um, we want to note, it would be interesting to see if that occurs elsewhere, but I think because he isn't an individual, there's no individual in view here, but talking about the people of God. Time for more? Vicky. Yeah, thank you. So 59 verse 16, I'll pick it up at the beginning. It says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede, that his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And question or comment is, yeah, how do we understand this righteousness that upheld him? Yeah, I think it's... um. I mean, it's a funny one because in many ways, when you look at, this is a more broader point, when you look at Isaiah and you see how it talks about salvation, because we're to understand that Isaiah is revealing the salvation that that is to come and that's fulfilled in Jesus. And I guess we can very quickly go to Jesus and think he's the saviour and um, think about him and the salvation that he brings. And Isaiah is forcing us to go back and to consider the categories of that salvation that were promised 
and then fulfilled. And one of the questions is, is do we recognize the categories? You know, is the salvation that Isaiah is speaking of, that was revealed, do we then go, yes, that's, that's precisely what we find in the person of, of Jesus? And if it's not, it's a challenge us to think, well, do we need to rethink and actually understand Jesus, the salvation that he has come, in terms of that which was revealed? And, and so I think it's interesting that, I mean, it'd be interesting to think like whether we do stress more. Well, interestingly, that, that thing where John the Baptist says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that I remember actually teaching that in, um, we were in lockdown, I think, at the time. And you, know, you kind of think, oh, that's just talking about Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin. Whereas, as you look at John the Baptist, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to have understood that at all. And actually, when Jesus is um, uh, suffering, he, he questions, you know, are you the one to come? And so, I think this is a very interesting part of Isaiah, because it, it forces us to consider that actually, the arm of the Lord is not only the lamb who is pierced for our transgressions, but he is the also, he is the, the righteous warrior, the one who God upholds in his righteousness, and he will bring righteousness to the world. So in that sense, he will take away sin, he will banish sin, he will remove sin from the world, which is part of this idea of the sanctification of the people of God. So I think it's, it's kind of in that, it's in that area that in order for this one to take away sin, he needs to be righteous. He needs to have the righteousness of God. And therefore, the righteousness, obviously, of the Lord Jesus becomes paramount because actually it's, it's because he is, he is perfect. He's able to bring that perfection to those who, who are in him. So I think they're, they're the, so in many ways, it's not always easy to kind of unpick each verse and go, is that this? Is this the vindication? Is this, this, is this, this? But rather you've got this, this, this picture of this, this righteous warrior who is going to remove sin. Um, and he, he does that because he, he possesses the righteousness of God. Is that kind of okay to begin on with? Cool. All right, let's leave it there. For now, we're going to sing um, our next song. And this song is actually a prayer. It's a confession uh, to God. So don't, uh, don't let it sort of put words in your mouth when you sing this, if this is what you want to sing. Um, but prepares us as we um, uh, share in the bread and wine. So we're going to sing Two Sins Are We Committed. <laughs>